regular terminal usage for years now. So it's pretty awesome to finally sit down and chat. That was kind of one of the things that I was curious to hear about from you is you've been in the Rails community forever at this point now, right? And I'd love to hear how things have changed and how you got into Ruby and Rails and Z Shell and all that. It's fun to hear those stories of where things were back in the day. Sure. So I was a freelance developer for a few years prior to getting introduced to Ruby on Rails. And so this is back in the... I started playing Oregon in 2002 as a freelancing thing with another business partner at the time who was a designer. So we would team up on projects together and started doing it full-time in 2004. And then late 2004, I actually decided I was applying for a job at a company called CD Baby, which started by Derek Sivers. And he was the only developer that had ever worked on their code base there. And it was all PHP code back then. And I interviewed with him in my living room at the time. And it was very non-conventional. And I think that still holds true today. And I was a PHP developer at that point. And he was verbally offered me a job, I think in November, December of 2004, to work on basically to become the first developer that he'd hired to come in and help continue working on the CD Baby platform that they use because they were headquartered here in Portland, Oregon in the US. So then he's like, let's figure it out after the new year. I'm going away on vacation. I'm going to go to Lake Tahoe and go skiing for Christmas. I'm like, okay, cool. So he came back and then he's like, hey, change of plans. I got stuck in a blizzard, but I had this programming Ruby book. And I now want to rewrite everything with Ruby and this new thing called Ruby on Rails. It's been around for a few months that I've heard about. So I found someone in San Diego who's Jeremy Kemper, who is one of the original core team members of the Rails project and said, I'm moving Jeremy up to Portland to come start rebuilding everything. But if you can pick it up, let's talk in a few months and I'll hire you then. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I guess I'll, I'm curious about this. And so I ended up picking up, started playing around with Ruby and Ruby on Rails. Quickly fell in love with it. I started a blog within a few weeks called Robbie on Rails. And which I didn't realize at the time that would be such a helpful thing for my career to have an alliteration. I didn't know what the hell alliteration meant at the time, but... I think it's also, side note, I think it's actually one of those things that it's hard to probably quantify in some level. But I think that is part of Ruby on Rails' success is the fact that it's an alliteration. And I've always kind of kind of reflected on that because I think that definitely helped play a part in my own career at some point. So anyways, that's a complete side note tangent there. You can dig into that more if you want to. So anyways, I had a job offered to me and then taken away. That's what led me to Ruby on Rails. And then so I started using it, started working on some projects, started blogging as I was figuring things out. There was some couple of open source projects that popped up around that time called Typo, which was a early Ruby on Rails blogging engine created by Tobias, who created Shopify. And my first contribution to like a Rails project back then was I made the Postgres database schema and make Typo work on Postgres because I was a big Postgres person at the time. And started doing that. And I was blogging when I was learning because there was some limited documentation. There was a lot of reading the API docs and the source code to figure things out. So I, as I was trying to figure out how to write software with Ruby on Rails, I would blog a lot. And I think that year, because there was a couple of Ruby on Rails blogging, what did they call those things back then? It was, everybody was using RSS back then. And so there were some aggregator sites. And I forget, it was like Planet Ruby on Rails or something like that. There was a site that would aggregate a bunch of things. And at the end of the first that year of 2005, they like highlighted who the most prolific bloggers in the Ruby on Rails community was. And I had like more than doubled anyone else in the community blog post that year. During that same time, I started the transition went from me trying to compete over hourly rates on Craigslist ads for PHP projects as a freelancer to all of a sudden people calling me and say, Hey, we work on my Rails app. We want to use this new thing. And you seem to know what the hell you're talking about. Because 
I blogged about it and people were coming to me and I started getting like invites to do job offer, to like, come work at companies. Uh, I talked to Derek at CD Baby and he's like, hey, are you interested in coming doing this now? And I'm like, I don't know. And now all of a sudden I have opportunities that six months ago, I was like, I would love to work at some small music company and focus on my music career because it's another big part of it. So there's a reason why CD Baby was such a, a, an attractive thing to me at the time because I admittedly quit my last job so I could be a freelancer and focus more of my time playing music. And what ended up happening is I accidentally grew the company around Ruby on Rails. And then some new startup projects came our way, and I think in like mid-2005. And then I started hiring a few people as contractors to help work on some of these larger projects. And I'm like, this is too big for me. And then within that fall of 2005, we went from two people, me and my partner at the time, to eight people working in my attic on a couple of projects to, I think by the end of the year, we had 12 people total. And so we we're like, well, let's just see what happens if we become an agency. Worst case, I go back to being a freelancer again. That was, I guess, January 1st, 2006 is when we officially became an LLC. And it was no longer like a bunch of contractors. And so that's when we became an agency, I suppose. So side note, part of that during that whole period of time as well, one of the things that I was doing was, as with Planet Argon, was providing hosting services for developers because I always wanted to work with the newer versions of, say, PHP. And a lot of shared hosting environments were always quite a few versions behind. And so I was like, well, this doesn't work for me if I want to play with the new stuff. And so I'm like, I know there's other developers. So I'm like, oh, I'll do, I know how to spin up servers and manage that stuff. So I was running like shared hosting environments and then was one of the first companies to offer Ruby on Rails hosting back in like February, March of 2005. And like where you can get like hosting for 12 or $15 a month. Cause there was a bunch of people like hobbyists. So they weren't going to spend a lot of money at the time, anyways. But at the time, that seemed questionably expensive. In retrospect, probably way undervalued our, what we were offering people about the, at the time. So that was another way of introducing ourselves to the community is like a lot of people knew us as a hosting company that also did some development, which in retrospect became a really difficult thing for us to shave away from our image. When we, in 2009, we sold that side of the business to a company called Blue Box, who later got acquired by IBM. And then we're like, no, we're just a design and development agency primarily. But anyways, for those handful of years, we had hundreds of Ruby on Rails hosting customers and then our collection of contracting type projects and building out new apps for startups. Most of them obviously didn't succeed because that's what happens in the startup world and which is how why we've kind of shifted our focus over the years. So anyway, that's how I got introduced to Ruby on Rails. And then the other question there about how Oh My Z Shell happened was during that whole period of time, probably 2007-ish, I was introduced to Z Shell from other members of the Rails community. And there's a handful of people, but we were always like sharing little snippets on there was something, what was it called? Like Pasty was like an online, you know, like a place we can just post some code snippets. And so I had this hodgepodge mashup of like configuration things in a Z shell RC file. And it was cool because there was some really cool auto completion things and some SSH server related auto completing. And we were starting to use Git around that time. And so some of the branch naming in your command line interface was that in your prompt that all seemed really helpful at the time. But one of the challenges was is when I was pairing with coworkers, they were still using whatever was default on their computer. And I'd be like, oh, right, I can't do that. You don't have this thing. And I'm like, could you please switch over to Z shells? I'm like, trust me, this will be so much nicer. And a few people were on the team were resistant to just copying and pasting my Z shell configuration because I couldn't immediately explain what half of it did myself. I don't know if I'm even using that chunk of code there necessarily. So there was a few people that were kind of interested in it, but there were a few people that I was like, I'm going to figure this out. How can I get them to do this? And then I was like, I'm going to document my file, at least so I understand what it's doing. And as I was doing it, I'm like, oh, there's kind of some similar related things. 
let me group those things. I'm like, oh, let me break this out into a couple of different files. It doesn't need to be this one big monster file anymore. And so I was like, I'll put this in a Git repository. I'll throw a name on it. And I had another project called Oh My Science at the time that was like a, a thing that we did on with a Twitter project. And that's a whole other topic. But so I was like, oh, I'll just kind of play off that name, Oh My Z Shell, because it's like my Z Shell configuration. I didn't really think about it, the naming at all. And then I was like, so I put up a readme and I threw it on, a, on my GitHub profile and then sent the link out to my team. And like that day, like almost everybody on the team installed it because there were some instructions on how to install it. And there was a little bit of documentation. And then within a couple hours, someone's like, hey, I want to change the colors in my prompt. I'm like, why? Like my colors are perfect. And that became like the concept of like, all right, well, how can you have your version and my version? And I was like, why don't you just copy that into another file and we'll just call it a theme, I guess. I don't know. You have this Carlos and Gary has his. Allison has hers. So we'll just do that. And mine's the default, Robbie Russell, right? So that's how themes were created. It wasn't like it was, I had this idea. It was just like, why do you want to do that, Carlos? I don't understand. So I still think my color choice was better. And mine's the most popular one because it's the default. Anyhow, so that's how the project got started. And I threw it up on my blog and shared it with people in the community. People started using it. And within a few weeks, some people were like, oh, I want to there was a lot of stiff stuff baked in that was very Ruby and Rails specific. There weren't plugins. That wasn't a concept. And someone was like, hey, I'm using like Python, maybe Django or something at the time. And they're like, I want to do something. I'm like, I don't need to load that into my thing. And I'm like, oh, maybe we can do something like a plugin, I guess. Here's a directory for that. Just came up with a simple way to specify which plugins to load. And then that just kind of evolved. Within a few months, we had a couple dozen themes and more plugins were coming in for different things. And Admittedly, so it's like one of those projects where, again, I was like such a narrow focus of I just wanted to get my team to use it so that when we're pairing, I could use the same command lines that I had on my computer. And then it became this kind of monster project that a lot of people use now. And that's great. And people ask me how I got into programming originally. I never had any ambition to be a software developer. My concept of being a developer meant that I'd be working in a cubicle in Silicon Valley, which is where my dad worked and still works to this day. He retires in the next few years. But and I always remember going to campuses there and being like, this is not my career choice path. I don't, I'm going to rebel against my dad. I don't want to be a programmer. He works in hardware. I always thought I should be a software developer from a really young age. And I always thought it was the most boring thing because it was like, here's a book. If you write this code in this editor and you run it, you can build a game and, and play it. I'm like, but someone else already wrote the thing. Why do I have to just retype this whole thing and do that? It just never clicked for me. I was like, oh, this is an interesting thing to solve my own problems. And so when I started finally picking up some web development type skills, it wasn't because I was like, oh, I want to build websites. It was I wanted to sell stickers on the internet for punk bands and for and things like that, an activist website, things that I was working on in the 90s. And so I was like, oh, how do I do that? How do I allow people to place an order for a sticker? Back then, it was all mail orders. So someone would like literally fill out a form. I was clever enough to figure out how to like have that form, like a CGI file, write to a CSV file on the server. And then I would log into an FTP server and download to see if anyone had ordered these stickers and usually not. So, But that's how I learned how to write websites was to sell stickers. And then accidentally, 15 years later, I built something that now sell stickers every day on the, for because of some software that I wrote. And so um, I'm holding up a sticker for our our group here. So I'm finally selling stickers on the internet on a regular basis. And it's because of some software that I wrote. This is a long process for you just to sell stickers on the internet. It is. <laughs> it, it is. I just raised the prices today because I'm like, 
Why not? Let's see what happens. Let's see if people keep buying them. Oh, that's fascinating. I remember getting into Rails and Ruby at some point and reading Derek Sivers' blog because he had posted about Postgres and Rails or whatever. And that was like my first introduction to some of the people in the community. So it's pretty awesome that back in the CD baby days, you were in that era of people because it feels like that era came and left kind of almost before I had joined. Why I wasn't around when I had joined and people were talking about him and they missed him. And I was like, who is this person? So it's fascinating to hear that. I hadn't thought about why in a while. It was one of my highlights as a blogger was he posted a link to one of my articles because actually I was doing something with Postgres. I was really curious about using, I don't know if you've ever played with DRB within Ruby. It's a distributed Ruby thing. He gave a presentation, something called FOSCON, which was open source conventions happened in Portland. And I think that was like in 2000, 2006, I think, see or so. And he gave a presentation at FOSCON the night before in a local like user group space here in Portland, Oregon. And it was one of the craziest presentations. It was like music, him and someone on stage. But he did this thing where people had their laptops and he's like, hey, if everybody opens up IRB and runs this thing, you can connect to my computer and you can make things happen on my screen. And so he showed a couple of little examples. So people were able to like change colors on his screen real time over... This thing. So basically, your IRB session connected, and then you could like interact with the object, a Ruby object on his computer. It was playing around with the screen that he had on, on the projector. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. So I had these like weird ideas. I'm like, what could I use DRB for? And so I had a couple of blog posts around it's still, it was like with the time, like this is before we were like playing around with APIs and stuff so much. But I was really curious about doing stuff within Postgres because you can load Ruby as a sort procedure type language in Postgres, because you could do that with Perl and PHP. Prior to me getting involved in anything like Active Record-esque, we used to put a lot more business logic in projects in the database. So you would call a function and that would go through and create a bunch of data. You just have a bunch of things happen there in the database. And it was my previous job before I, you know, my, before doing planning of time was working at a company where my boss wrote the O'Reilly book for Postgres. So I got heavily indoctrinated into Postgres back then. And so for early on in the Rails community, I was kind of like a Postgres touter and always like, no, 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 Postgres is way more reliable. It was very much not the popular thing back then. But in Postgres, I've, so I did some stuff where you could call like a function and that would do things like have Ruby load in your Postgres. So like you could save data into the database and then have, let's say, have that data get translated. Say, for example, you would save textile. So there would be like a textile Ruby gem, kind of like red cloth, I think was the one we were using back then. So I had a thing that when you would pull it, you could wrap that attribute in the database with a red cloth function, and that would just run it through red cloth and then return it back. And so I didn't have, it was just like, because I could, not because like you should necessarily, but like, I was curious about Ooh, how could you do some interesting stuff back then? So I was blogging about just some like fun experiments. And so why link to those? And that definitely one of my highlights of my blogging career back then. I'm like, oh, why included me? And it's a list of like, people to follow as well. And there's like little sidebar and stuff. So he was a nice person and it was a great person to get to interact with at conferences and such. The, the mystery of what happened to why. He did some fun stuff. I just am now remembering, you know, you did miss out on some fun things back then. And, but, and I'm trying not to get, would be one of those nostalgic people. But another thing that he did was he re, there was this thing called hoodwinked. You basically, you would point 
your so like we think we pointed like our local gateway server on our in our local home network to an IP address that he had spun up. Basically, it was like a proxy server where it added like a layer of just imagine if you wanted to add commenting features all over the web that like a private group of people could know about. And so back then, Slashdot was a really popular tech blog website. And so there would be people's comments, but then there would be our own community comments on things. And so we had like our own little private commenting system. And so we were all like, this was all a lot of people in the Ruby on Rails community and Ruby community at the time. So it was our own little snarky way. I'm like, if they only knew what we were saying over here, it was kind of a fun little tool back then. And so I tried to revive that at one point, but I didn't really have any success with the post Y vanishing in the community. I could listen to like all your stories for hours. This is so cool. I hadn't thought Um, about this stuff in a while, to be honest, but at least with some of those, but I was similar to Chris and when I got in, like why it just vanished. And so all I knew about why was there was this book and this really fascinating person and he's gone. I am curious. So like, Hey, I think it's amazing that you even interviewed with Derek. I just think that's so cool. But so you did your own thing and you have an agency and you've had it for a long time. I'm curious, is the work you still take on Ruby and Rails work? Primarily, yes. So we do some React things and such as well. A little bit of a trend towards doing some React-only projects. We've done other things like Ember, some Angular things in the past as well, where because we can, but it's not our kind of focus necessarily. So a lot of what we do isn't necessarily building out new apps. We're probably not the cheapest company to do that with anymore. And admittedly, we don't like working with startups because they usually go out of business. And I like not having to bring on lots of new clients on a regular basis. So we're always looking for like long-term clients. So projects that typically over the last, say, seven, eight years that have come our way are ones that an organization might be outgrowing freelancer or a freelancer is no longer able to work on it or a company's kind of bounced around a couple of different freelancers. And they're like, okay, we don't necessarily, we're not in the right position to say hire out our own development team and have multiple developers. Another scenario is they've had one developer working on their project for several years. And that person's like, I'm never going to get a coworker. I'm going to go get a job, work with a team of developers. So, and then, so they leave. And then that company is like, what do we do? Do we just go hire another developer? Or maybe we should look for a team that can kind of provide a little bit more cross-functional skill sets. And so they'll come to us and be like, hey, can you take over the ongoing support and maintenance of this application? We want to build some new features, but we also... Is what we have right now something we should keep investing in or not? We don't really know. We just had that person that was in the corner. We didn't know how to manage them necessarily. And we felt really reliant on them. And now they're gone. We're like, what do we do now? So we come into those situations quite a bit. So we have a number of projects where we just kind of work on an ongoing rolling retainer type of situation where we're adding new features, fixing bugs, monitoring their systems, just keeping things going and upgrading and such like that. And then more so over the last few years, because we've done a lot of upgrade projects, we're trying to steer a little bit away from signing up to be the company that takes over the upgrades because there's companies that never really learn how to manage the upgrades themselves. And I think that's more problematic if you think that you can just hire a company to come in, take care of that and send over a PR at some point and everything is going to be nice and golden. Those projects are big and I honestly believe that it would be a better service for that team to bring in a team like us or those other companies like Fast Ruby and such that come in and, and also provide more of a consultative, like how to get your team rethinking how you approach this stuff. So it's not like, a, oh, is it time to upgrade again? Like Rails 6.1 just came out, at, what, two or three days ago? Well, a lot of companies might be like, oh, cool, but they're not going to get around to that anytime. There are already multiple versions behind. And so, well, that sounds nice, but I don't know where 
we're still running on 5.2 or maybe something even earlier. And so we've got incremental steps to go to get there. And so we come in and help companies like that kind of set up some different, rethink how they're organizing that type of work, look for opportunities in their process to put that into like more of a rotational thing where they come back and revisit that. And yes, there's some really good tools that they can use to like, if they can set up the infrastructure to do things like dual booting and have the things running a little bit behind, that's like nice. And a lot of larger companies can invest in that. But there's a lot of teams that just don't have the capacity or even really the skill set to go, oh, I'm going to go automate some of this stuff so that we're just a little bit behind. And that way we can relatively stay up because we know there's a lot of companies out there that are struggling to retain their developers because they're falling further and further behind because developers are like, well, I'm not getting to work with the new stuff. And then I feel like we're just kind of like constantly hitting our head against the wall with these dependencies. And this company doesn't apparently care about this stuff. And so that's the way they're interpreting it. So I'll go somewhere else where the grass is greener, whether or not it is a whole other conversation. So I want to help companies like that try to overcome some of that because eventually the conversation will become, we're not taking care of this. We need to rewrite this because we're just so far out of date because that's, it seems insurmountable to go back and get this thing caught back up. And we've also learned that rewrites, especially big rewrites, are way underestimated. They more often fail than not and try to maintain an existing system and rewrite it, maybe a new technology and think that you're going to have better practices as a team is very short-sighted. And we want to help teams protect those investments that they've already made and to help get them closer to where they need to be. And know that it's it's not something you're going to fix overnight either. It's a long process. So hoping that we can come in and provide some interventions and stuff like that. That's cool. So you mentioned a lot of like other front-end tools like React, Angular, stuff like that. So you you primarily just do Ruby though for actual like server side. Yep. And I mean, a lot of that is just the trying to just being open. Like I read enough marketing books over the last several years that like, you got to find your niche. Don't try to be everything to everyone. And I'm not a maker personally. I'm a mender. You're my, yes, I made Omez Shell. But again, that was like a hodgepodge of some stuff that I was compiled. I didn't invent the thing necessarily from scratch. It was born out of like copy and pasting stuff from other friends and stuff over the years and, and, and modifying it to my own liking. And so I always like going into the messy situations. I like figuring things out. If I had maybe picked a career path, archaeology is really interesting to me, like trying to understand why things are the way they are and like be curious about how organizations kind of approach things. And so software in that capacity really interests me. And so I think that goes back to the like, I never enjoyed the idea of writing new software. A new Greenfield application is not exciting to me because I don't want to make all those decisions. I want to work on the thing that's already proven to provide value and figure out how to improve it, how to fix things in it, how to make things more efficient. I like that type of work personally. And so I kind of try to hire people that align with that. And that if so, if they're looking to work on like brand new technologies on their resume, this isn't the company for you. We're very upfront about that. We're the company that has to roll our sleeves up and we're going to get our hands messy. And that's okay. Let's do that work because I think there's a lot of lost inertia and time spent. It's a weird thing about software because it's, I think, just the idea of software being this cheap thing you can throw away. But we don't just tear down buildings because someone's like, well, I don't know how to maintain this thing. Let's just throw the building down and build a brand new building up and it'll be better this time. Like You still have to figure out like, how do you take care of things. Software is a reflection and an artifact of people that and organizations that have invested a lot of time and energy and thought into making things work to help a business perform or an organization conduct some sort of work. Or, and, and those things can go away at some point and no longer provide value. But I think... We, as a, in our community, we often 
undervalue the work that the previous people that you're no longer like that aren't there in the room anymore that have done. And it's just, let's just toss it and throw something else in and it's replaced. There are definitely good times and arguments for rewrites, but I think there's more often the case of let's figure out how to improve this thing before we call it a day on it. That's one of those things that like if a new developer comes into a team, there's so many things that are in the code, but not explicitly. There's like a requirement here, or we did it in this specific way because of some other thing. And it's not necessarily described directly in that chunk of code. If you throw that away, those are the things you have to like relearn and reinvent because you discover them later on as you're rewriting it. Oh, crap. They did it that way on purpose. And it wasn't just bad in general. And I think it's interesting, but I was curious to hear from you. What do you think are some of those ways to address that as you're even as you're rewriting it or like trying to maintain it and continue? What can you do to try and make that easier in the future? In terms of comprehending or understanding things or... I mean, yeah. And I guess just kind of trying to make it maintainable for the longer term. You might have something that's kind of weird and you want to do the rewrite on it, but you're like, how do I actually fix this so that we can understand it well and make it easy to maintain in the future six months from now when we forgot why we did it that way? Or whatever. I'm just kind of curious what your your thoughts on that is. There's a couple things there, and I think just to be clear on my usage of language there, when I say like a rewrite, I'm typically referring to a full rewrite of the application, or or at least I think it's one thing to break off a large component of an application, and we're going to rewrite this aspect, and we're going to put it into a microservice or something, and we can get into a conversation about microservices or not. So like we're refactoring something, maybe in the way that you're kind of describing that. There's a lot of patterns and how to go about doing it. So if you can identify and lean on some of the patterns, refactoring patterns, that can definitely help make it more hopefully explicit so that if you said, this is why we did it, this is how we're going to go about refactoring this type of work. So at least you're following some sort of pattern that can hopefully be understood by other people. But for those things that you're making some of those, something that's difficult to understand and trying to translate that and then change the code. I think if you could just figure out... It's one thing to be... I'm not... In the Ruby community, we're always really big about, well, Ruby is pretty self-documenting. It's very you know expressive. And, but there's plenty of Ruby code out there that it's really confusing to follow. And so trying to find a good balance on documentation. A thing that I think often that can be done now that I don't think I've seen enough happen... We occasionally do it on some projects now. If you're trying to explain something... Obviously, you can try to write out some documentation, but I've taken a liking to actually creating a short little screencast type thing. This is me explaining how these things kind of like I've figured this out. I'm trying to understand some existing code. I'm gonna I'm like, okay, let me pop up my little screencasting thing. I mean, I don't have to put a lot of time into editing it. It's like a four minute little screencast of me going, all right. So this web page, a screen in this interface, is doing this weird thing. Here's what I figured out behind the behind the scenes that I can pop around. And then either in the code or the, the Jira tickets or whatever you're using in your pull request, you could link to that, just have that be saved in your team's documentation system or something like that. Here's a little short little thing. And this is only viable until we change it again. But at least it's something that can leave a little bit of a bread trail to someone else. And if you can do that and you're like, oh, actually, I think I could probably... If you watched it again and you're like, oh, this could probably be distilled to a couple sentences. Great. But I think sometimes when you're looking at code, a lot of written documentation just kind of gets blurry. But Sometimes maybe just like someone else walking you through it, it could be for your own benefit. That can be cheaply done. You can pull up QuickTime 
in your thing and just quickly do that and save that. And the quality doesn't have to be great. You're not posting that on YouTube for everybody else to watch. And so that's one thing I've taken a liking to, to explain things. But I think in terms of that's not going to like be the answer for everything. You should have to watch like hours of videos to understand the code. The code should hopefully be kind of points you in the right direction. So I think as you're encountering those messy areas of code. Don't be afraid to do things like when you've got methods that are really complicated, like, like what, what the heck are these variables in here? Like rename them. You know, if like if it's in the a, a scope area that you feel like you have a pretty good, make it clear. That's a like a really simple thing. And people are afraid of touching code they don't understand, but like and if it breaks, like hopefully you have some way to know that. I know that adding tests to existing applications that have very little tests is really complicated. I just had a conversation the other day with Jason Sweat for our podcast for Maintainable. And we were talking about this and he's always advocating that people don't start on the most complicated, most important parts of the biz- your application to write tests if you don't have any yet, because those are probably the hardest areas to write tests for because of all the dependencies or data dependencies and if you got a lot of objects playing around and like, how do you make this even like have the available data in the way you need it to be to actually even run the test? And so he has some good advice on that. And you can check out his Rails testing ebook that he's put up recently for stuff like that. Some good advice there. But yeah, there's a couple of like thoughts that, I mean, obviously just learn to get into refactoring methodologies. There's some good books on that. And, but I think this is always something that teams need to have more conversations for. And I would advocate for doing more pairing or mob programming at times. And it may be not as easy now with everybody being remote, but there are tools that you can use to, to help make that work. Yeah, I really like the screencast idea. I think that's like something that would have in a bunch of projects that I worked on when I was consulting, that would have saved hours and hours of time just trying to figure out why was this built the way it was? And you're like bashing your head against the wall. If you had a, a two minute video explaining, that would have saved so much time and trouble. And yeah, I feel like there's a lot of interesting things about that. Maintaining software is... I think the thing is when you're learning to code, it's always build new stuff from mm-hmm. scratch all the time. And then the reality of working as a developer is 95% of your work is maintaining code. And I don't think that's as clear to people when they're getting into learning to code. And I had talked about a while ago, like, I wish that in school, when I was in computer science, that we had built something the first year and maintain it for like your four years that you're in college. Like, how fun would that be where you actually get to like go build something and actually spend time trying to to maintain it? But of course, college isn't organized that well to be able to do anything like that. But to your point, like, maintaining is really kind of the crucial skill to have as a developer. It is an interesting thing. I didn't go through a formal education whatsoever, dropped out of high school, and I didn't like self-teach myself because I know that I took advantage of books. And I never read books, but I knew how to reference programming books in a certain way and how to search for stuff on the internet. That whole aspect of like how people are taught how to code, and we bring in interns on a regular basis here. And so we do almost every quarter, we bring in at least two interns. and the experience that we're wanting to offer them, they're coming out of boot camps, have like six month boot camps, and we throw them in the deep end of existing projects because real world client projects, not fun little concept projects, are like, oh, build a little new little thing over here and we'll give you some pull request feedback and stuff like that. It's, no, we're going to throw you in, you're going to pick some bugs, you're going to have to understand this thing. And like projects, they've never seen anything that big usually, and they're just like, 
wow, this is really daunting and scary. I'm like, but this is reality. This is what it, your first job is going to be like. Unless you get a job at a brand new startup where there's no code, almost everybody's going to be like launched into the scenario. And so we want to help boost their confidence. So within their internship, that's usually five or six weeks. By the end of that, they're like, I have experience now working in, in a Ruby on Rails application that has 200 models. I still don't understand how it all fits together, but I at least know how to navigate my way around and I'm not intimidated in the same way. And that's something they can go talk about when they're applying for jobs and interviewing that they've had that experience. And it's always an interesting thing. I think when you have such a compressed amount of time, at least with the boot camps to learn things, you got to learn those fundamentals. But I think you also need to learn how to read code. I had a guest on Maintainable, my podcast a while ago, named Tudor Gerba, who pointed out that they've done some studies that developers spend more than 50% of their time reading code. That's like something we don't talk about. We don't talk about how to improve the, not so much like just the readability of code, but just are the tools, we use tools called editors. But most of the time we spend is reading and they're optimized for coding and input, but like where's the consuming information? And so there's, he was pointing out that there's a lot of different ways and tools could maybe be improving a lot of tools that I wouldn't even consider, oh, that seems like a valuable idea. But like I've seen some stuff, I forget what the folks that make like JetBrains and, and all those, those tools, they have some like interesting layering tools now where you can add other types of commentary on top of the code without it actually being code commenting. And so there's other ways of maybe thinking about how you structure the information around code. Because I think a lot of teams end up having either have inline coding or comments or you've got something like a confluence documentation area where you go upload over there and you try to like reference things. You might copy and paste some code snippets, but is that even linked? So if you change the code, it's it's outdated. There's nothing really like connecting all those things. So I thought that was an interesting. We're not using anything like that ourselves, but I think this is something that I'm curious to learn more about. Like how how do we improve the comprehension time for people? when we're spending so much of our time as programmers, just trying to understand what we're looking at and how to piece it together and get this mental model so we can start plugging in. And oftentimes, a lot of our coding changes that not being a lot of lines of code, it just takes us a long time to figure out where those lines of code need to be modified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. That reminded me of, have you seen that the execute program, Gary? I forget his last name, but he... Bernhardt. Bernhard, he had that talk where he talked about building a new program text editor. And it would have these layers of these are lines are going to be highlighted in various shades of red because they're slower and context like that. And then at the end of his talk, he's like, and I lied, I didn't build this. But <laughs> you know, our editors really should be able to convey this other information. And a lot of programmers will go and build something like they'll end up doing nested loops or something. They know that that solves the problem, but they don't understand that yeah, it does, but it's also introducing like this chunk of code does way, way more than these hundred lines before it because they're looping through this giant array. Right. And it's interesting to imagine having that extra information, even just on the lowest level of like, here, you're doing a loop and this is going to you know affect the, the performance here. But then having comments and other things could be really fascinating. Or even just, I've thought about this too. You know, you could pull in your performance stuff, but you could also pull in this chunk of code has raised this many errors in production mm-hmm. and have that synced into your text editor would be so fascinating. I think that's one of the things about our, at least in the Ruby world, I think we value so much about how simple Ruby is to read 
that you talked to a lot of uh, developers that like work in the Java in, in the world and things like that, where they or Lisp and other systems where they've got these like really seemingly complex tooling for writing their code in, where it's got all this like I don't personally feel like I need to remember that I have tools that when I hit the dot, it's going to fire up all the methods available to me. That stuff doesn't feel important to me. Years ago, when I used to work with like PHP, it did because those were horribly named a lot of the time. And so I'd, what was the name of that thing? And so I'd search around for stuff. And I don't feel that way about Ruby in the same way, but there are developers that learn the value of having like those refactoring tools built into your editor. And I'm like, I just don't think about the code in that way. Maybe I'm just not working on large enough complex projects where you've got hundreds of engineers working on something and you're like, your standardization is like, everybody has this, we're paying for this fancy editor tool, IDE, that everybody can do these like complex things. And so we know that it's done consistently. If you're going to use this refactoring pattern, the thing will do it for us. And then maybe it speeds some of that up. But I just, I'm not working in those environments that ever have seen the value. And in the same way, people in that world are probably like, I don't know how you could possibly work the way you do. So it's just like, we're in different parallel universes, I think, at times. I will say, I used RubyMine the other day. We wanted to refactor a change the database field. And I knew there was a button in RubyMine to do it. And it was a really common name. So like grepping through the code was taking forever. So I just ran the tool and it got almost all of it oh, wow. in one go. That's cool. I haven't looked at RubyMine since I want to say like 2009. It's been a long time. It's been around for a while in the community. I have it. I don't really use it until I have a gnarly problem. Mm. But I had a couple of questions about ZSH. I think that's yeah. kind of how getting you on here originally started. <laughs> I feel like I am underutilizing oh my ZSH. What are some cool things that you've seen people do with it and maybe some common misunderstandings that you think people have about the project? On the misunderstandings, well, just to be very clear, oh my ZShell is not ZShell. Uh, sometimes it gets kind of overlapped by people thinking it means the same thing. I've, I've seen people like, oh, great, oh my ZShell comes by default now with your new laptop. And that's not actually the case. So you have to install it. So if you're trying to figure out why it's not working, it's because it's not there yet. You have to install it. You do that oh my ZShell website.sh. But in terms of like the underutilization aspect, I was curious like what plugins I currently have. There's hundreds of plugins right now. So a couple of them is obviously there's Git, there's Git Extras. Git Extras has a bunch of extra features for Git or these auto-completion type things. I'm really keen on things like AutoJump or Z, which are plugins that help you jump around your directory structures. It kind of remembers where you've been. So you can kind of type in like the name of a project and it'll just jump you right there. You don't have to like use CD in that way. So it'll learn that based off your viewer usage where you're kind of navigating. There are for the Ruby folks, there's just some plugins for Rails or some for Bundler so that you can kind of, you can do some things. There's also for RBENV and RBM. So it can kind of take care of a few little features there. You can, if you're running on your on Mac, there's some plugins for Spotify. If you use the OSX one, you can control Spotify from your command line. Another little small little thing that I like to point out to people on my team, this is a terminal thing. When you have those long running processes, that you're running on your computer, say you're testing out something and things are running for a while, you're doing a data import for something, tack on a little like semicolon and use take advantage of the fact that your computer can talk to you so you don't have to babysit it and just be like, you can type the say command and you can have it tell you that the, the database has been imported or something like that. Like test the finished running and that way you can 
trigger is you're not keep going back to your terminal. I use the say command all the time to tell me that something's done. We used to use like notification, things like that, but I feel like that's an underutilized thing. And that's just built into your computer. It's also fun if you want to like tack on a bunch of say commands for fun and creep out your partner by having a little command run that in a weird voice that will wait like two minutes out when you're out of the room and then start like asking questions. So have your computer talk to them. It's like a fun little gimmick you can play with people. But anyways, as far as other plugins, SSH agent is another one that I'm quite keen to use on a regular basis to kind of help manage your SSH configuration. There's some other things related to for VS Code. And I mean, I'm you primarily use Atom and I don't really, there's nothing really super fancy about the Atom plugin there, to be honest. But yeah, there's a lot of things for like your Docker managed like tools. A lot of it is auto-completing type features around the the commands that are built into or that you would install for things like Docker or Node. And so there's just a lot of those types of things that are people can take advantage of. I saw someone just submitted a pull request last night for generating passwords as an example, like a thing. So like a little thing just to generate random password usage that you can do from the command line. So if you're not using one password or LastPass or something and just wanted to do that from a command line type tool, that, I thought that was kind of neat. There's some other goofy things in there. There's some fun ones in there if you look that are just all about doing some goofy stuff in your screen. And like, I'll say, oh, oh. I think it is one. Yeah. I think there still might be a Chuck Norris one in there that like has some stuff, stuff in there. But yeah, I admittedly don't keep up with all that, all the different plugins on a regular basis. We have uh, another person who's helped take over a lot of the day-to-day maintenance of the project. And that's been quite helpful and definitely take a look at that. And that's Mark Cornella, who's based out of uh, Spain. And he's been working on the project for a number of years because that was definitely not my primary focus project in my life, but it's something I like to play with and dabble with and it way outgrew what I'm capable of spending my time on. So if you're listening and interested in contributing to an open source project on more than just submitting pull requests, but maybe helping out in some sort of maintainer type capacity, we are looking for some more people to come help out because we've got hundreds of things to work through and are trying to formalize that a little bit more. Nice. Yeah. I want to go back to like one thing you said about running these long running tasks. I have a function where I can type a, I think Rails test and I wrap it basically in a command where at the end it like actually does like an Apple push notification, which I'm quite fond of. That might be a time to reach for Tmux, especially if you're on a server and if you're SSH in a server, I literally was having a conversation about that this morning. But yeah, I, the other question I was going to ask was what it's like maintaining that project. But you kind of answered that where you've had someone kind of step up and that's always really great and something that doesn't happen for everyone. No, it doesn't. It's funny because I think I remember in 2000... So I, I released all my Z show in 2009. And in 2011, I remember I was interviewed on the Changelog podcast and... At the time, I think I've heard, re-listened to part of it recently. And I, my goal at the time was like, I want to keep the number of pull requests under 100. And I felt like that was a maintainable goal for me. And, and at the time, that seemed like a, a lot, right? And so I'm going to go pull up right now. Yeah, we've got 516 pull requests open right now. So it's a lot, right? And that's with a few people helping maintain the project. And appreciate that we're, we have so much activity and stuff like that, but we have a lot more formalized process about how we review and approve things so we don't just like overly grow the project any more than necessary. But so I would say a few things. One, when you have a project that's widely used, your GitHub notifications are basically become useless. One of the benefits of having a, a larger project is you get invited 
to the GitHub world to talk and share about the things you're dealing with. And so they've definitely improved your dashboard view when you come in over the last few years on how to make it organize the information because it would just like, I would log into GitHub and it would just be like, tons of people started your project. I'm like, where's the information I need to know? Where's the, the issues I can like quickly jump into and help out on? There could be a lot of noise in that way. So we've had to build some tools to automate and organize the work for us. And that's been quite helpful. So, and a lot of that's been done by Mark there, but yeah, it can be an interesting thing where it just becomes like, it's like that whole thing where they talk about being in a pot of water and it's boiling and it's the frog away for the, how that exactly goes, but you don't know it until you're in it and you're like, oh, wow, now it's 500 pull requests on a a regular basis or sitting there. And so it never feels like it's done, but I also don't feel guilty about it because I know that most people are running on my Z shell without any complaints and it works great for them. And so it's just, there's a lot of new little enhancements and new little features and things that people would love to see in it, but not everybody's missing out because they aren't there. And so we try to address the bugs first and any sort of performance things as best we can. But when it comes to new features, those are like, they're there when we get to it, but and because it's open source, anyone that really wants it can go merge that into their own version of it right now. Right? That's one of the benefits of open source. Yeah, I have a. Uh, I don't know if it's like a wrapper or just like some like additional themes and stuff, but I have one that I always reach for and to kind of like extend some of the built-in behaviors. So yeah, it's extendable. So I think my last question is: Do you have a favorite plugin? I assume your theme is still your. Your favorite theme? It is. It's funny. I'm actually working on a new theme called Shelled In because someone tweeted recently that that just sounds like the best theme name for something. And I was like, oh, I'm going to make that. So it's got a little turtle emoji in it. And so I just need to figure out a few little things. It's, it's not that much of a difference from the Robbie Russell one, but it's one I will hopefully be releasing soon. That's got a little turtle for you. So I think it looks cute. And as far as favorite plugins, I know I mentioned a couple of ones that I lean on a lot. Just like Things like the .env plugin is really helpful. A lot of our projects are using that. And so that's just really helpful for kind of removes a few steps on my part. Awesome. Robbie, we appreciate so much you joining us and just sharing stories and all your knowledge. For those listening who may want to explore more, where are some places that people can find you? Yeah. So you can learn more about Planet Argon at planetargon.com. I also have maintainable.fm is the podcast and you can find Oh My Z Shell by searching for Oh My Z Shell anywhere on the internet, probably. And I'm available at Robbie Russell with a Y and at Twitter as well. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. and uh, Likewise. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Guess we will talk to the rest of you guys next week then. See ya. All right. Thanks. Bye.